When I was uh, in the Royal Marines, I lived on camp, and there was an occasion when uh, I had a bit of extra leave, uh, but I stayed on camp for a week before I went home. And unbeknown to me, uh, we had rounds on the Friday. Uh, rounds is when you got to get the accommodation immaculate, uh, ready for the officer commanding the OC to come and inspect. Now, I should probably caveat this by saying that uh, I was uh, a very good field soldier, uh, but when I wasn't in the field doing my job, that I think it's safe to say that uh, I had issues. Anyway, uh, it's Friday morning, and I'm woken by a knock at my cabin door, a little cabin in the accommodation block, uh, and the door opened almost immediately, and there was the OC and the troop sergeant there to do rounds. Uh, at this point, I'm lying in bed, unshaven. There's bags all over the floor ready to go on leave. Um, my parents' dog, an Alsatian called Heidi, was there as well, looking at the OC quizzically. And uh, worst of all, from the OC's point of view, there was a, a sign on the wall above my bed which read, OC Command Company, which had been removed from his door sometime before. <laughs> Now, I don't think I was declaring myself to be the OC, but that's certainly what it looked like. I was, in effect, an imposter. An imposter. And a pretty shoddy one at that. I couldn't even take charge of my own bed space, let alone command company. And when it comes to genuine power and authority, the world is full of imposters. And it always has been. A lot of us struggle with authority. We don't like the idea of someone being in a position of power over us, even when it's a loving and benevolent God. Uh, when we read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, one of the main points of that story, that narrative, is that they reject God's authority and attempt to seize autonomy for themselves. They want to call the shots. They want to be in charge. They want to redefine good and evil in a way that suits them. Humanity has been rejecting and resisting God's authority ever since. And the book of Revelation has a lot to say about this. Revelation belongs to a genre of literature called apocalyptic. And it's full of figurative language and metaphor and strange symbols. Uh, even so, a lot of people read the book of Revelation in a very one-dimensional way. It's often seen as a sequence of events, sometimes seen as a literal sequence of events that will take place immediately before Jesus returns. But it's more accurate to say that it describes a problem that exists in our world and has always existed in our world and what God intends to do about it in the end. The problem is man tempting to usurp God and claim the throne that is rightfully his. And then the chaos, the corruption, and the evil that ensues as a result. Revelation is a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, these are real churches. They are real places that existed in the first century. You can still visit the sites of the ancient cities that John lists in chapter 1, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. A friend of mine actually cycled between them all in one long uh, cycle ride. Amazing thing to do. 
And this letter is entirely relevant to those churches named after those seven cities. It's entirely relevant to us as well, but we need to read this in context. If it only has to do with the events immediately preceding Jesus' return, then it's not quite so relevant to those seven churches uh, 2,000 years ago. You see, those churches would have been able to see what the imagery in these letters points to. They would have known, they would have been able to read this and understand how it all fits together and what this letter is saying. So who was the imposter of their day, the would-be usurper of God's power? Well, it was the Roman Empire, and more specifically Caesar, who was worshipped as a deity in most parts of the empire. This letter was likely written just after the reign of Nero Caesar and during the reign of Domitian, two Roman emperors who were ardent in their murderous persecution of Christians. Now, when you think of the book of Revelation, what are the first things that come into your mind? I bet you think the beast and the number 666 and all those things, they're the first things that come into our minds when we think of Revelation, aren't they? Well, the beast represents the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire. It represents every corrupt system of human power that has ever existed or will ever exist. And the number 666 has nothing to do with the barcode on your shopping items. Remember that everything in this letter is relevant to those seven ancient churches. It's a long time before barcodes. But it's worth knowing that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a corresponding number. The lowest number is one, and the highest number is 400. If you add up the values of the Hebrew letters that spell Nero Caesar it comes to 666. If you add up the value of the letters that spell beast in Hebrew, it comes to 666. The beast and the number point to a key key theme of revelation, which is corrupt human power. Human beings attempting to govern themselves without any reference to God, without any worship of God, like a wild, untamed beast, out of control. In our reading today, John was admitted to God's throne room. Uh, We know that there is a physical reality to our world. There is also a spiritual reality. And John gets to see behind the scenes, as it were. He gets taken from the physical to the spiritual in in this dream or this vision. And he sees that it is God who is seated on the throne. God's throne is mentioned 17 times in chapters 4 and 5, and throughout the whole of the book it is repeatedly contrasted with Satan's counterfeit throne. And then in verse 4 we read this, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. This is probably a combination of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles making 24 in all. In other words, they are representative of God's people. Their white robes denote purity and victory, and their crowns mark them out as belonging to a royal priesthood. And then we come to the other strange beings, the four living creatures, 
covered with eyes, front and back. The first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle. The lion is the king of the beasts. For the Hebrews, the ox was the most superior of the domesticated animals. Uh, The creature with the face of a man represents all of humanity, every nation. And the eagle is the most regal of birds. Together, they represent all of sentient creation. And there's four of them. That's significant as well. They signify the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. They represent all of the creatures on the face of the earth, no matter which direction you go in. When we combine the 24 elders and the four creatures, we get a picture of God's people and all of creation worshipping God. The eyes that cover the creatures speak of their vigilance in their task of worship. They never stop worshipping. Verse 8 says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders, they bow down before the one seated on the throne, that is God, and they place their crowns in front of him. It reminds me of that song that we've been singing recently, Laying Down. And the first line of the chorus is, I'm laying down all of my crowns. That's what the elders were doing. That's what we are called to do, to put everything in our lives under God's authority. And you notice when the creatures worship, when the whole of creation worships in this vision, it just worships. It can't help but give glory to God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Another example of creation giving God glory. So the whole of creation gives God glory. The animal kingdom gives God glory. Uh, It doesn't know it's doing it, but it is. But when God's people worship, they know the reason for their worship. Listen carefully to verse 11. The elders say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The theologian N.T. Wright points out that one of the key things that separates human beings and animals is that human beings can use the word because. Because. Animals know what is. Human beings can discover the why behind the is. And the greatest journey of discovery is to be found in getting to know the God of the universe who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us not forget that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And worship, worship is central to the message of this book. In every age, the beast arises because human beings refuse to worship God. So instead of recognizing God's power and majesty, we end up with a corrupt and degenerate counterfeit. We're being created to worship. Every human being is a worshiper, whether they realize it or not. Throughout all of human history, every civilization and every culture has had some kind of system of worship. But so often, humans have worshiped the wrong thing. Some have worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. That is to say, they've worshipped creation instead of worshipping the creator. Others have worshipped false gods and idols. Why? Why have we done that? 
Well, the reason is pretty straightforward. You don't have to relinquish any authority to an idol. An idol won't tell you what to do or how to live. You can make an idol, a little god, in your own image, just as you want God to be. Of course, people in the Roman world were under Caesar's authority, but they didn't have any choice about that. And my atheist friends would tell me that we're moving away from this superstitious religious nonsense, that our enlightened minds are freed from any compulsion to worship imaginary gods. But even atheists worship. Even atheists worship. They might worship their ideas or their superior intellect as they see it, not realizing that they are using God's good gifts of reason and science to deny the existence of their creator. And in so doing, they're creating an even greater vacuum for the beast of human autonomy, corruption, and folly to come and fill that void. God has given us science. It's wonderful. It's fascinating. But many have turned science into their God, which is tantamount to worshipping creation instead of worshipping the creator. Human beings have been given the capacity to reflect and understand the world, even to understand something of God. We've been given the capacity to put the why behind the worship. As we come to church this Advent, we need to think about what it is that we are here to do. Yes, we have fellowship. We link up with our friends. Yes, we are fed by God's word. Yes, the children are getting super excited about Christmas. It's lovely to see. But the main reason for us gathering each week is to worship the one who sits on the throne. And it's really helpful to keep the throne room and the stable in view this Advent because together they reveal two important aspects of God's character. The throne room reveals God's majesty. The stable reveals God's humility. So different from human power and the way that works. And this gives us the why behind the worship. Not only is God our creator, but he loves us enough to have set aside all the riches of heaven that we might be reconciled to him. As it says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus entered into our corrupt and broken world, and he suffered at the hands of the beast, the counterfeit authority, the anti-God authority that was the Roman Empire. Uh, that imposter that has been replicated in every age and every nation. But on the cross, Jesus gained the victory over the corrupt, oppressive, anti-God powers of this dark world, whether human or demonic. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And Jesus will return to topple the imposters from their thrones once and for all. That was good news for those first century Christians who were experiencing fierce persecution at the hands of the oppressive Roman Empire. But it's also very good news for us. 
When we look around at the destruction and suffering caused by human greed, selfishness, and recklessness, or even just our own struggles, our own struggles as a result of being caught up in, in, in this messed up and broken world. And we long for Jesus to return and make all things new, to put everything right. This Advent, even as we remember the baby in the manger, let us not forget who it is who sits on the throne, the one who is worthy of our worship. And together we pray, Maranatha, that ancient prayer, Maranatha, means come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look around this world at governments and powers and authorities, we recognize that they are a poor imitation of your authority. And the further we move from your will, from your design for our lives, the more corrupt and broken and dysfunctional and evil that authority becomes. We thank you that it is you who sits on the throne, who is worthy of worship. And we pray that this Advent, we will worship you, who came into this world as a tiny, defenseless, vulnerable baby, grew up, lived a perfect life, taught us how to live, taught us how to relate to our God, and died on a cross for our sins. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we keep all of that in, in view this Advent. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>